When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tendy Talk. I am your host Joe, better known as Washed Up Goalie on social media. This week's episode is a special one as I talk to a goalie who played 677 games over 15 years for three different teams in the NHL. That's right, today I talk to Hockey Night in Canada analyst Kelly Rudy. But before I talk to Kelly, let's take a short break. Hey everybody, Joe here for Anchor, the podcast provider. Here's all you really need to know. One, it's free, and two, Tendy Talk uses it. Anchor has features for your podcast like voicemail and listener support that's all available free through the Anchor app or through anchor.fm. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your episodes easily from your phone or computer, then Anchor does the hard work of distributing your episode through all the major podcast distributors. That is, after you've registered with them, of course. You can also make money for your podcast. I know I will try and do so, so that I can cover simple costs like website hosting. There is no minimum listenership required for you to start earning, so you can start right away. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And now, back to the show. Kelly, thanks for joining me uh, this afternoon. It's it's a real treat to have you on the podcast. When I sat down and started uh, mapping out what I had envisioned for the podcast and thinking of people I wanted to hopefully one day get on there, your name was near the top of the list. So, uh, Awesome. Thanks for joining me. I, and I know that you said you're going to have a growler, so I want to bring my own little uh, version. I'm in a Carlsberg beer stein but i'm drinking a sapporo right now so cheers. oh nice cheers 
I am drinking a uh, Dangerous Man peanut butter porter. And where's that from? Uh, it's a small microbrewery in Northeast Minneapolis. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah. In fact, I, I went there Saturday. My brother-in-law's girlfriend is a personal trainer at a gym, and her friend has a salon up up top. So I took the kids to get haircuts, and the brewery's like two blocks away. And I said, <laughs> of course, I got to get a fill-up. <laughs> but I, I had to... Had to laugh. My mom called when I was there with the kids, and my son picked up the phone, and I heard him say, "Well, we're at the gym to get a haircut." And then he had to repeat what what he said, and I had to explain to my mom that, "Yeah, he, he's he's not going crazy. We're at the gym so they could get haircuts." <laughs> oh, that's funny. I like it. And yeah. how old are your kids, Joe? Uh, my son is twelve, and my daughter's thirteen. Um, oh, good ages. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, really fun ages. Neither of them play hockey, but they love skating yeah. on the pond. And in fact, yeah, we're, totally. We're in the midst of constructing our first backyard rink this year. So, oh wow, what great great memories! I don't know if you grew up with a backyard uh, rink. I know I did for a few years. My mom and dad built a rink for us. I believe I was only about three or four, and uh, we we had it for a number of years. I can't quite remember how many, but great memories. My brother and I go out there all the time. A couple other friends would come out. I could barely skate back then, but it was just. Really, really fun and uh, great memories. Yeah, you know, we, we didn't have backyard rinks because I grew up in Chicago in the city and uh, oh, okay. Okay. The, the yards weren't conducive to that. No, when, I guess not. <laughs> when we told our friends that we were going to put a backyard rink up, one of them goes, you know, that, that's a lot of work. Are you sure you want to do that? And my wife looked at her and said, have you met my husband? You, you, re- <laughs> you realize this rink really isn't for the kids. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, there are some pretty incredible ones out there. I was just on... I don't know if it was Instagram or Twitter. Uh, I think it was last week. And there's a community between Edmonton and Calgary called Red Deer. Mm-hmm. And these families got together and built just this incredible backyard rink in Red Deer. And uh, it was like the highlight of social media there for a couple of days. So it just looked incredible. Yeah, I saw that one with the boards. And they, they had yeah. it between the two yards. Uh, right. That, that's almost how our backyard rink started is uh, the neighbor has done it the past couple of years. Uh, oh, nice. his, his boys are a little bit younger than mine, but they live next door to each other, so they're best buds. And uh, But his boys are in hockey, and here in Minnesota, that's a six to eight night a week affair for one kid, yet alone two. Absolutely. So he had been putting it up, and his kids never use it. My kids use it more than his do. Yeah, right. And uh, we have a big hill in the backyard, which is great for sledding, but not conducive to much else. So we built a retaining wall and had some area flattened out specifically for a rink and the nice. neighbor was talking to me he goes you know I wasn't planning on putting mine up this year do you want all the supplies <laughs> and we'll just put it over there and I said perfect yeah. <laughs> so they saved me a little bit of money there <laughs> I like yeah yeah so I, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of my uh, past episodes but my idea behind the podcast is really just two goalies talk and find out a little bit about you know your playing days which everybody if they follow hockey and they're older than 12, they know who you are. Uh, in fact, 12-year-olds 12, 12 in Canada should know who you are as well because of your, your work on Hockey Night in Canada. But, again, it's just two goalies talking uh, about the game, but also uh, what interests us outside of the game as well. Um, I listened to part of your uh, show yesterday with Ron Tugnut. And okay. I've known Ron for a long, long time. Just a great guy. Yeah, that, that, that was a fun one. Uh, his, his lovely wife, Lisa, was the one that really helped orchestrate that. And she was our 
technical lead on that one. <laughs> so that, that, that was great and a fun, fun discussion with him. Um, and my kids not knowing who he was and I, I mentioned his name and of course they got a chuckle out of it. <laughs> so, um, you know, right. what, you know, so you, you kind of mentioned how you, you got into hockey and that was the backyard rink when, when you were just a little guy. Um, you know, and, and I want to ask how you got, you know, drawn to the position of goaltender. But before I do, uh, I, I want to share that uh, earlier uh, in the week, well, gosh, it's only Tuesday. So late last week, I was talking to Matt, the fellow behind the Vintage Goalie brand, and he shared this really fun story with me that I thought you'd appreciate. And All right. Uh, he said he was at a friend's house watching a New York Islanders game and saw this guy take off this just goofy-looking Jofa bucket and he said he had this mane of hair, and then he had this blue bandana, and he goes, that was the moment I said I want to be a goalie. Oh uh, so for you, what was that moment, you know, where you said, I want to be a goalie? Oh, boy. Okay, so this is a bit of a long answer, simply because it, it, it didn't, I didn't come to that conclusion very quickly. So as I said, I started skating as a real young boy, but I didn't play organized hockey till I was 12. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to join an organized team when I was 11 years old, simply because Joe, I just wanted to be around my friends more often. It wasn't because I had this uh, goal of playing in the national hockey league or anything. And uh, so I told my parents when I was 11 that I'd like to play and they gave me the best advice. They said, no, you have to learn how to take for a year. And so yep. growing up in Edmonton, very much like uh, Minneapolis, it's uh, especially back then, it was quite cold. And so there are a lot of backyard rinks and there are community rinks. And that's where I started skating for a year. And then in the summer leading up to that uh, year when I was going to, when I was 12 in, the, in September, when I was going to go try and play organized hockey, that summer, my buddy and I were playing ball hockey in his backyard. And uh, his dad kind of overheard a conversation that Jeff and I were having. And his dad, Mr. Marshall, said, you know, Kelly, I don't want to influence you too much, but whenever all the kids are over playing ball hockey and you're in the net, you stop the ball more than anybody else. <laughs> and so that sort of, you know, turned on the light bulb a little bit. I thought, hmm, maybe I'll give it a whirl. And then when I went out for my first practice and fell in love with the position, uh, that was pretty simple for me. And then at that point, it was a full-on uh, hobby to know more and more about it. So uh, the great Jacques Plante, uh, early on or late in his career, but uh, early in my development, he wrote a book, and it was simply called Goaltending. Mm -hmm. And so I devoured that thing almost daily and certainly nightly laying in bed and, and reading about skating techniques and how to hold your hands and all these different aspects about playing goal. And so that was really the start of it for me. And then, of course, Jacques uh, retired shortly thereafter, although I had a great chance when Edmonton Oilers were still in the WHA. Jacques Plante played a year for the Oilers, and uh, we didn't have a lot of free money laying around, but I can't remember how, but I was able to go again with my buddy Jeff to the Northlands Coliseum and watch Jacques Plante once. And that was, I mean, that was everything to me. Yep. And then, of course, uh, Bernie Perrant uh, idolized uh, Jacques Plante, and so Bernie played the same way, and so I idolized Bernie and uh, I really tried to emulate uh, that style. That's pretty much it. You know, I, I love that you mentioned that your parents said, 
no, you need to learn how to skate first. Cause yeah. my parents told me the same thing. You know, we're, we're not going to sign you up for yeah. association hockey until you yeah. learn how to skate. So they then signed me up for Murray Bannerman's learn to skate on Chicago's wow. South side. And uh, wow. I, I was talking to Connor Beaupre about it. And I said, you know, I remember being this little 10, 11 year old kid learning to skate at Murray Bannerman's learn to skate going one day I want to be as good as him. And then I was watching the, uh, Blackhawks North Stars alumni game was a two, three years ago. And I'm sitting there as a beer leader yeah. now going, you know what? I think I've reached that goal of being better than Barry <laughs> Bannerman right now, but he's also much older than me. I hope to be as good as him at that age. <laughs> he was unbelievable. And uh, yeah. he learned from the best Tony Esposito. Yep. But I remember Bannerman, uh, that really beautiful striking mask that he yeah. had, the white mask and the, the artwork uh, above each eye. It was just uh, yeah. unreal. So, you know, one of my first experiences uh, playing against Murray Bannerman, actually my first ever exhibition game in the NHL was 1980 in the Chicago Stadium. And uh, playing at the other end was Tony Esposito. So I was blown away. Yep. The next year we played Chicago in Indianapolis. That was our minor league team. That's where I was going to start the year. And I played two years there. And Murray Bannerman was the goalie at the other end for Chicago. So I played against both Tony and Murray in two consecutive uh, training counts, which was just a memorable experience for sure. Yep. That, that old Chicago Stadium was quite the building, too. Oh. It's, oh, it, that had to have been intimidating going in there as a uh, opposing player, especially once they started the tradition of cheering during the anthem in that place. Oh. Well, the one thing about the size of that ring, too, because it was, I think, like 15 feet shorter than every yep. other arena. So when you have guys like Doug Wilson and the other great shooters that they had, when they're firing that puck, it's a lot closer. So my experience in that building was either I was absolutely fantastic or horrible because, <laughs> you know, there's no middle ground in that building. I loved yeah. it, though. Yeah, I, I remember um, when I was playing college hockey, we were playing at Gustavus Adolphus. And they had a smaller rink, like the Chicago yeah. Stadium. And so it just threw everything off for me that first totally. time in. Um, yeah. Most notably, we came from skating on an Olympic sheet. So we had all this real estate Ooh. behind the net. Um, uh, and I got really good at a good, strong push to get to the board and stop that wraparound. And I, I've told the story before on the podcast, but that first puck that was wrapped around, I got the big, strong push. I went to the board. I bounced back fell on my side the puck went by me and I look up at the bench and the coach is laughing and at intermission he goes I forgot to tell you something there's not as much room back there <laughs> <laughs> no there's not much room man that must have been hard for you to play on international ice surface and then uh, at times go back and play on regular ice sheets because I know the first time I played on international ice I'd already been in the National Hockey League for a number of years and I went over to Moscow and played in the World Championships in 86 for Canada. And uh, I was blown away because most people wouldn't know this, but uh, you and I would, as uh, playing the position, uh, you, you rely on all these different sight lines to get yep. your positioning. And you don't always or necessarily have the chance to touch behind yourself to find where your net is. And so it's those sight lines that are incredibly important. And if, and if they're different, that can really throw you off. And I struggled mightily uh, in those world championships, but I'm so glad I went anyways. It was a great experience. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because that never really threw my game off because growing up there were a few more Olympic sheets at different arenas. So I, I went back and forth between NHL and okay. Olympic sheets. 
But uh, when I first started skating, our association had a goalie coach simply because he had just retired from the uh, – I think he was in the AHL. He's playing for the Rochester Americans, Darren McCleskey. He had blown out his knee, and um, he was trying to start his business as a goalie coach. So he came to our association and said, hey, I'll do it free for the year. And one of the things he instilled in us was every new rink you go to, just get yeah. the markers and see where you're at. So uh, yep. that was something that was instilled in me right when I started. So when I went yep. to different rinks, even at Casivas, yeah. everything in front of me was fine. It was just I didn't think about behind me. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. funny. I probably got caught the other way. Probably the first couple times I went behind the net to stop a puck in Moscow, I probably didn't realize how far it was behind the net. And uh, I don't know if I would have gotten there soon enough because, you know, it's all about speed and timing and getting back mm-hmm. there, setting the puck up for your D-man. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm now at the point in my beer league days where I just don't come out and play the puck. It, unless it's an icing and the referee is not going to come down and pick it up himself. That That's my idea of playing the puck these days. <laughs> I love it. That's one of the things, one of my very first year playing hockey, uh, we, our coach was a guy by the name of Pat Fontaine, not to be confused with yep. Pat LaFontaine, the guy I played with in New York, but Pat Fontaine and practices were pretty slow back then, right? And they didn't really include goaltenders as much as you would necessarily think. I think there was a lot of skill development for the skaters. And one of the things Pat had me do all the time in practice was shoot the puck against mm-hmm. the boards. And as a young kid at 12, you don't have a lot of uh, muscle. And, and uh, so it, it's, a, it's really difficult to shoot the puck. It's even more difficult to raise the puck back then. But all those hours uh, firing the puck against the boards, I thought it really improved my skill. And I, I have to say, I think I was one of the better guys at playing the puck back when I played. I, I hated those drills when I was uh, first starting. I had a straight-bladed Vic stick. Wow. And it was heavy as can be for, you know, a 10-year-old. And just yeah. because when we played the puck, it was hand at the top, glove down at the, you know, neck there. And it was just, yeah. oh, my God, my arms would just hurt. <laughs> and I'm going, can you guys well, shoot at so me already? Heavy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I was uh, talking to the goalie gear nerd about it saying, you know, I don't like the composite sticks because I started with heavy sticks. I, I still have my – Titan goalie stick simply because it's signed by Bobby Hall and Stan Makita. But that wow. thing was just a log. And if you compared it to a stick today, it's super light. And well, what did that cost back then? Because Titan sticks were expensive anyways. I can't imagine the cost of a goalie stick. Would you remember? You know, I think it was like $25, $30. I do remember because it was – uh, Yeah, it, it was at the Southwest Ice Arena Pro Shop. And oh, yeah. it was just sitting there forever and ever, and every day we'd go in I would, for practice, and I'd just be looking at this stick and looking at it. And eventually, you know, my association stick broke, and my dad goes, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll get you your own stick. So that, that was actually the first goalie stick that I owned that was an association, and I still have it. I don't remember anybody having a Titan goalie stick because, uh, at least in our neighborhood, nobody could afford that thing. That was <laughs> yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, it's crazy the price of goalie six these days too. Even the wood ones are a hundred bucks. Uh, when I was playing in high school, they were about fifty bucks a piece, and I had a bit of a temper. Uh, okay. So if, if I let in a bad goal, I would take that stick and hit it yeah. out my uh, pad, and it, 
every now and then I would break one and my, my dad got tired of uh, replacing broken sticks because of oh, a bad yeah. temper. He said, if oh. it breaks because it breaks, that's one thing. But if you do it on your own, absolutely, you, you're buying your own sticks now. And so yeah. the first game after that, I let in a bad goal and I got upset and I broke my stick over my knee. And then all of a sudden, dejected. and my grandfather, a Dutch immigrant who really didn't understand the game, but he loved coming to watch me play. He looks at my yeah. dad and goes, why is he so upset? That wasn't that bad of a goal. He goes, no, he realizes that just cost him 50 bucks. <laughs> so then my grandpa started laughing. And then after the game, we're in the lobby and he kind of comes up to me and hands me a, you know, little bit of cash. And he goes, here, go get yourself a stick. Don't tell your dad I gave you this. Oh, nice. <laughs> he goes, so what, kind of stick, what kind of stick did you go get? Oh, it, no, at, at that time I was using the uh, Cooper Bauer Reactor 5, the Belfour patterns. Yeah. Still my favorite stick. Wow. Those those Bauer reactors were just great. What sticks. year was that? What year? Uh, that would have been um, around probably ninety six, ninety seven. I use those sticks too. Yeah, they they were my great. Last, my last two or three years in the National Hockey League, I used that equipment. Maybe maybe more. Maybe four yep. years. You know, I, I I think those were some of my most favorite sticks because they were a durable. But yeah. I, I like how the paddle was uh, flat. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't rounded like the Vicks that you used or the Cohos mm-hmm. at the time. It was more of a flat paddle. Um, and I just felt like I had better control. And they, they were lighter, but uh, yeah. they weren't a feather like today's. I, I still knew I had something in my hand. Right. right. <laughs> no, yeah. I, always, I did like my... Uh, my sticks tapered a little bit. Now I'm going way, way back. I think it might have been uh, what did Bernie Perrant use? Did he use a Sherwood maybe? And uh, they were just clunky things that there was no tapering whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So after a few practices, seriously, your hand would just be so beaten up. And then when the tapered goalie sticks started coming in on the paddle, I was like, that was eye opening. I was like, really? I can hold this and not beat my <laughs> up every single practice is fantastic yep yeah it's it's crazy how even just the sticks have evolved over the years um even yeah. some of the guys cutting that trigger grip out now where i love the idea i just don't want to cut into my own stick because i know i'll probably screw it up um <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it's it, i i've uh talked to some younger goalies about you know some of the equipment we had to deal with like the two-piece chest protectors that really oh, yeah. were no protection at all yep. And uh, some of the stuff, and they're like, why? And it's like, yeah. well, because, you know, you knew you were a goalie if you had bruises. Yeah, and that, that is one thing that uh, does bother me to this day. Like, it's not something that I worry about, but it, it does bother me, the protection that the, the current goalies have, because I'm all for protecting the goalies. I know the position. I know how hard it, they shoot the puck. I know how it hurts. Uh, we don't want to injure our best player in the ice, in my opinion, that's the goalie, most important player. But look at some – you look at the bodies of these guys when they're out of their equipment, mm-hmm. and most of them are skinny, tall guys. You get them in the net with their gear, and they're enormous, and yeah. they leave very little room to shoot at. And I think if I had my opinion, I'd ask the league to do even more in that department and take away – I don't want to take away the protection – I just want to take away the bulk because yep. it's it's changing the game and it's just it, you know we all cheat in our own way but that's so blatant. Well, look at a guy like Marty Brodeur who really spanned probably three different eras of goaltending. Yeah, 
And yeah. when he when he left the game, he was still using equipment yeah. consistent with when he started. Where yeah. you know he didn't have the thigh right. You actually could see his breezers. Uh, yeah. Today you can't even see a goalie's breezers. Uh, and right. to me, I, I agree with you. There, there's room for uh, cutting away and bringing the equipment back to what it was probably in the '80s. Um, with, with the added protection of the technology we have today. That's right, with the technology. And that's such a great point because you could have uh, maybe the size of the 90s because we were getting better. Our equipment was getting yep. better for sure. We weren't as uh, scared of the puck. Um, but with the technology that they have in the equipment, you could certainly play with that size of equipment and you would have no fear of the puck. You wouldn't have to fear injury. And I would really like to see that. Yeah, you know, it's funny because Ron and I were talking about that last episode of, you know, goalies don't have that fear of the puck anymore. They've gotten into a blocking versus a stopping mentality. And there was just something about when you knew your equipment and you knew where those pain points were, I think you were a better goalie because of it. You had better reflexes and you you approached uh, the plays a little bit different simply than this is my angle. Yeah. The, the odds are if I go down in this butterfly with my, you know, elbows in, I'm going to stop it. And if I don't, yeah. well, then, oh, well, you know, whereas us, I think it's, here's my angle. I'm going to go down. But if it gets deflected, I'm going to make a move to, to also stop it. Now, there, there are a lot of things about the current goalie that I love. And I am envious about the way they play. Like, yeah. it looks pretty cool when you, you know, <laughs> they play the butterfly and, you know, they have their own sort of athleticism. I don't want to take away from that. But uh, I just think that the equipment is, is so good that it would be even more fun to watch these guys if they didn't have the advantage of the bulk. Yep. You know, it's funny, the uh, first snow we got this year, I was out there with the snowblower, and I was thinking about that, wondering, you know, what if we had guys like yourself, uh, Patrick Watt, Eddie Belfour, Grant Fear playing in today's equipment, how different, um, how dominating would they be, or would they be as dominating? I don't know. I, yeah. know, I, <laughs> I, I think that equipment aside, uh, there's one skill you need, and it doesn't matter if you're uh, – George Vesna or Jacques Plant or Patrick Waugh or Dominic Hoshik or whoever you think the best goalie is right now, uh, maybe a few years ago is Lundqvist. There is one quality you have to have, and that's, that is you have to read a play. Yep. And if you can't read a play, you can't play. I don't care how talented uh, you can be, how good you can look in practice, uh, the equipment, all that kind of stuff. You have to really understand the game uh, to get the best out of yourself because every goaltender will tell you, and there are a lot of other things too, like you have to figure out uh, the deception a guy's going to have on his release on the shot, mm-hmm. and that's so critical. But you have to understand, for instance, when I played against Wayne Gretzky, I knew that I had to be aware of all four guys on the ice with him because he wasn't the only dangerous guy. He made everybody dangerous, whereas Mario Lemieux – I thought Mario may have been a tiny bit more talented individually, but Mario probably wasn't going to make all four guys on the ice with him dangerous, maybe three. And that's a yeah. big difference. You know, that's one option that you really don't usually have to consider. Yep. And uh, no way, shape, or form is that a slight towards Mario because he was incredible. But yeah. For instance, a guy like Pavel Bure. When Pavel had the puck, 
you focus on Pavel because yeah. there's not a lot of passing, you know. Whereas a guy like Ovechkin, for instance, he's a great shooter, but he's incorporated that uh, playmaking ability. And, and so there's so many different factors when you look into how to play the position and uh, when you're evaluating the skill set of a guy. Well, and I even incorporate that in the beer leagues right now. You know, I've been in my league for five, six years now, and I've gotten to know the players on the other teams. And yeah. I know which guys aren't going to pass the puck. Yeah. I know which guys do pass the yeah, puck. That's right. it, it plays into the way you play them. You know, if, if the guy that's Absolutely. not going to pass the puck is coming down on a two-on-one, I know I'm coming out further on him than I am somebody else. Now, do you use uh, who shoots left and who you shoots right as an indicator? I'm not There's that. No right or wrong. I'm no not right smart or enough to figure that one out when they're coming okay. down. I'm so focused on the puck still. Okay. <laughs> so my biggest indicator, and I know I've talked to a lot of other guys okay. uh, that played the position, and most of us focus on I I need to know, uh, or I know automatically if he's a right or left-handed shot, but yet. I did an interview with Jonathan Quick during the, I think, in between the two cups. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can probably find it on YouTube somewhere. And I asked him that very same question. And I was really expecting he's going to say, oh, yeah, I know everybody what, uh, what hand they shoot. And he had no idea. He couldn't even tell me, and this is in a good-natured way, he goes, I can't even tell you who shoots right or left on my own team. And I see him every day in practice. So yep. that's why I say there's no right or wrong answer. It's just, I'm curious about that. I use that indicator so much, Joe, when I'm broadcasting. So because the game happens so quickly and whether I'm in the booth doing a Flames game or if I'm in Toronto doing hockey night, I can basically eliminate half the guys quickly because I know who shoots right and who shoots left. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a real handy way to uh, – identify the players for me yeah it's funny you say that because when I'm watching games it's definitely something I pick up on but oh, wow. when I'm in the net I think I'm so right. focused on that puck yeah. That, yeah I see the blade but I don't see what side of the blade that the uh, shaft is going up <laughs> you know half the time I'm trying to look through my teammates legs to see the puck to begin with <laughs> yeah right well and that's crucial you have to find your yeah find the puck Yep, exactly. Um, you know, so one of the questions I wanted to ask you about, um, and it's funny that the day we were recording is the day that my interview with uh, Ron Tugna came out because he played in the game where he had 70 saves in a regular season game. And then up wow. until this year, you had the game with, what was it, 73 saves on the, the Easter epic, uh, yeah. seven overtime game. How did you stay focused for, what was that? 10 periods of hockey uh seven periods seven seven period yeah seven periods because yeah. it was four over. um that's a great question first of all by the way if you're a goalie fan out there and you haven't watched the highlights <laughs> of ron Tugnut in that game you're doing yourself a disservice because that yep. was phenomenal and that was in regulation and overtime that was one yeah. game so my game was seven periods uh but Tugnut, i believe makes one of the greatest saves in the game's history with about five seconds to go or something off Ray Bork. Yep. Just phenomenal. Anyways, and he said it was luck. <laughs> oh, did he? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you know, luck, you have to have a little bit of luck, and I, I can accept that answer. I didn't think so, but I'll go with yep. that if that's what he says. But, you know, that was one of the greatest challenges we had, Joe, 
because the game started at 7.30 in the morning, or in the evening, of course, and uh, ended at four minutes to two in the morning. So there's a long time to try and stay focused, which is mm -hmm. awfully difficult. But what I found and what I discovered that night, and I've used this ever since, going into an overtime, the first two minutes are the most dangerous and the last two. And I, I liken it to uh, you've gone into the dressing room, you sort of let your guard down, you walk out onto the ice for the overtime, and you're not quite as focused as you need to be in the first two minutes. Mm -hmm. And the last two minutes is because the same thing. You're sort of letting your guard down, thinking about getting some rest in the intermission. Now, it's been statistically proven that I'm wrong by a minute <laughs> on either side. So it happens to be, so for all the analytics out there, uh, it's the first three minutes and last three minutes that are the most dangerous and it's been proven by the stats. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting you say that because I, my freshman year of high school, we had a triple overtime state playoff game and it, it oh. was the same thing. It was just, you know, don't, don't make that mistake early in the period and don't yeah. make that mistake late. And every, everything in between, you just settle into that rhythm. Now, um, who won? Uh, we did. My, my buddy TJ, uh, who he had the mentality of a goalie. He really did. Um, he was just cherry picking on the far blue line, literally waving his stick in the air like, come on. And somebody saw him, gave him the pass, and he just went in oh. and buried it. Um, we, we, had, uh, we almost had a full crowd watching that game because we had two beer league games backed up waiting to get on the yeah. ice. Yeah, right? they, they were all in full, full equipment watching the game. and. Yeah. They, they all went crazy when the, the, the goal was scored because they knew finally they got to get on the ice. <laughs> now, what was your reaction when the goal went in? Because when Pat LaFontaine scored in quadruple overtime, uh, I was at the other end, of course, yep. and I'm watching Andy Van Helman, the referee, point to the goal. I saw my teammates raise their hands in the air. I saw the shoulders slump of the Washington Capitals, but I stood still and I was in disbelief. I didn't want to get too excited in case for some reason the goal is going to be uh, called back or I didn't know. So I stood there, I, I bet for two full seconds until I allowed myself the joy of, uh, holy cow, we've actually won this game. I don't know, what did you feel? Uh, th there was a moment where I waited to see if TJ was going to skate back to our end for the celebration because I was so tired I didn't want to skate the length yeah. of the ice oh, to celebrate. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so I, I remember um, talking to Ron because he, he had a pretty long overtime playoff game too, yeah. and, and he mentioned the hydration issues be yeah. between periods and cramping up and after the game, you know, what – what do you remember from that? I know he said he remembered the smell of bacon. Guys were just eating bacon between periods because that's what they had available. Well, see, there's the evolution of the game. Back when <laughs> I played, uh, we, didn't, we weren't prepared for a long overtime game, so we had nothing to put in our bellies, right? We had no food. We had no oranges, yeah. no, no uh, bananas. We had – I don't even think energy bars were even invented back then. So – we were basically just trying to get as much water or energy drinks into our bodies, but that's not enough. Once you're already yeah. hydrated, you can't rehydrate in, uh, during the intermissions. And uh, so I remember after the celebration, after the handshake, after some media requests, I started taking my gear off. I'm going to say ballpark about 10 minutes after two or quarter after two. 
And literally, I was so dehydrated that when I started to take my skates off, my toes just immediately curled under. That's how uh, dehydrated I was. So you know what I did, Joe? No. I, downed two, I downed two quick beers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a different time, right? Like, yeah, it, it's a different time, but there's something to be said about that post-game beer. It, it's, oh, my gosh. It just goes down so easy. It's, it's like well, a going, beer after mowing the lawn. It's just the yeah, perfect time for that. it. <laughs> going back to the hydration, though, you know, I'm so old that uh, when I played, of course, junior and the first number of years in the NHL, I think about five years in the NHL ballpark, we weren't even allowed water bottles on our net. So can you imagine, like, why can't everybody else has a chance to get a a drink on the bench and uh, stay hydrated in it? They didn't allow us goalies a chance. So you you weren't getting those commercial breaks either to hydrate. So it was nuts. I mean – I don't, I don't know. I, I think the league just got lucky back then that some goaltender didn't run into some serious medical issue because he wasn't hydrated enough. Yeah, that, that's crazy. Um, so I, I, I want to address an elephant in the room from your time in L.A. in practice. Um, every day you got to skate with the legend of Marty McSorley's <laughs> illegally curved stick. Uh, <laughs> was he using that often in practice? Uh, you know, and what was it like when he would just rip it by with that thing? All right. Well, I don't think there's any secret back then. And I still think to this day, uh, <clears throat> there are a lot of illegal sticks being used. And back yeah. then it was common for Marty uh, most of our guys all use the illegal sticks, but at a certain point in a game, you would switch to a legal stick. And I had that as well. I, <clears throat> I always used an illegal stick for, for most part, two full periods. And then for the third period, I go to a legal stick. Um, uh, and uh, I would have that same game, game two in Montreal, I would have used an illegal stick for the first two periods. And uh, most or all of our guys, I believe, went to a legal stick in the third. And for whatever reason, Marty didn't. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, I know this. Marty was an incredibly important player for us. Like, he was an unbelievable player. People don't give Marty the credit for what kind of player he was. Like, when he came into the league, he was just a tough guy. And through sheer hard work and determination, he turned himself into a good player. Yep. Um, so, you know. Again, I've never asked Marty why he didn't go to a legal stick, but, you know, I don't think we lost the series because of that play, but we, I think we lost the game because of that. Now, there's been speculation that it was the Montreal um, locker room attendant. Do you give any credence to that uh, uh, speculation, or was it just – you know what, it, it was circumstance and it just didn't go the way you guys wanted it. I hesitate because I'm not sure. There are plenty of rumors, right? Whenever yeah. you go to a visiting rink that the the home team had some way to get into your dressing room and measure sticks and so on. I, yeah. I mean, just a standard thought back then. So I don't know the specifics of that, that game and that arena and that night. I do know that uh, that was – fairly common and how they did it I'm not sure but uh you wouldn't put it past them back then right I mean yeah teams tried to do get any advantage that that Stanley Cup final is still one of my favorite ones to have ever watched because it was just back and forth you had you versus Patrick Waugh 
Patrick Waugh with the wink at one point. It was just that whole series was unreal. And then you had that glorious mullet of Barry Melrose behind the the bench. (laughs) It was just – it was great vintage 90s hockey right there. It really was. I, uh, it's not a good memory for me, so I got to tell you, I haven't watched the series. Like, yep. uh, it's the most painful hockey memory I have. It's, uh, you should or you would think that getting to the Stanley Cup Finals would be a moment in which uh, you're proud of yourself and that you know, at least you've done something quite impressive. And yet, for me, looking back is just a painful, painful, painful time, and uh, I don't like it. I don't. I don't get any uh, great joy in even thinking that we got to the finals. I found it easier, in fact, losing in the first or second uh, rounds in my career than it was losing in the final, which you would think would be the opposite. You would think if you get ousted in the first or second round, that'd be you know devastating. And, and, and again, it is to a certain degree, but not the same feeling that losing in the finals. Well, it, it makes sense because it reminds me of Olympians where they say you win the gold medal and you win the bronze medal, but you don't win the silver medal because to win the silver medal, you have to lose the gold. So it, it, it makes sense. And I, 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 I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Different mindset too, for different athletes and different uh, countries and so on. I know that, uh, like I said, when I played in uh, Moscow in the 86 championships, world championships, we won bronze medal. And uh, to this day, you know, I, I, I understand from the feeling Europeans, that's a really big tournament for them. And mm-hmm. uh, we in North America don't put as much uh, credence or importance on that tournament as we should, because it was cool. I mean, the, the media at the world championships is, it might be greater than the Stanley cup. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anyways, because of our mindset, in particular as Canadians, uh, we're always trying to go for gold in hockey. And if you don't get it, silver doesn't mean anything. Gold doesn't mean anything. Or uh, bronze, I to this day have no idea where my bronze medal is in the world championships. And I think most people would like that. You know, you'd look yeah. at it and you know what, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and absolutely. I have no idea where, where it is. It's somewhere in the house, I guess, but <laughs> I've never bothered to look for it. Oh, boy. <laughs> See, I'm the kind of person I'd have that framed up or something, you know? Well, I should too, right? Yeah. If I, if I thought things out rationally, that might be like <laughs> put somewhere. Well, you, you know, if, uh, if we are stuck in our houses much longer, maybe, maybe you'll go looking for it. Who knows? <laughs> Good point. You, know, you mentioned a guy, you know, a teammate like Gretzky, uh, but you had some other great teammates like Bossy and Trottier during your Islander years and uh, some other greats. What was it like going up against some of the greats, not just of the era, but to have ever played the game in practice day in and day out? What did that do for your game? Well, I was really fortunate when I went to the NHL because my first team, of course, was New York Islanders. I'm going to a team – I was drafted in 80, the first year they won the cup. And uh, the first year I made them out of the minors was 1983. So they had just finished their fourth consecutive Stanley Cup. And so now I'm going into a dressing room. I was the only rookie out of training camp that year to make the team. We added uh, Pat LaFontaine and Pat Flatley after the Olympics that year. We added Gord Deneen, Paul Boudelier, 
couple other rookies in the uh, as the season went on. But so I was able to like that's like getting a PhD in how to handle the psychology of the game, right? I'm watching Dennis Potvin and Brian Trotche and Mike Bossy and Billy Smith and Clark Gillies, all those guys now in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Then you had Bob Bourne, Bob Nystrom. Uh, the list is endless, right? Mm -hmm. All the incredible hockey players that uh, I could ask any question of and, and just learn from. And they were intense in practice. Like practices were phenomenal. Um, and then when I was traded to L.A., and now I'm playing on a team with Gretzky, and then we had Yari Curry, Paul Coffey, uh, Luke Robitaille was there, uh, Tony Granato, Rob Blake, Larry Robinson, just incredible. And, and so you really understand the human mind and how that works and how everybody might prepare a little bit differently, and some guys are uh, harder on themselves after a bad performance, some guys are pretty good at parking it and not letting it to bother them. So the experiences I had, and you're right, it's the games are one thing, they're great, but you really have to appreciate the practices and what, mm -hmm. you know, what you're witnessing firsthand. Yeah. You know, it's when I think back to my competitive days playing through college and talking to other hockey players, when we think about what we miss of the game, yeah, the, the games are great, but it's those, yeah those battles and practice and in the, in the locker room antics that we miss the most. Oh my gosh. Right. Just the, the banter before a practice getting yeah. your on or, or before a game and people would be surprised by how loose the players are and what's said in the dressing room and uh, how you tease each other. And, and those are just glorious uh, memories, right? Like those yep. are some of the best things and the fun you have and you're, maybe you have a big win on the road and you get on the bus uh, after the game and you're, you're in a great mood and you're busing to the airport to catch your charter and the guys are just having the time of their lives and chirping each other. Those are special moments for sure. Absolutely. Now, I just want to check on time. Are, are we still good on time? We're good, bud. All right, excellent. Because sometimes, sometimes these conversations just go like this one where it's, <laughs> you know, two goalies that uh, have never met before, but uh, it feels like we're old teammates and the, the conversation <laughs> just flows. Um, so when I think of your playing days, the first thing that sticks out to me is your stance. You had that throwback where it was the legs were together, stand up, high glove, um, which I, I loved uh, David Hutchinson's son's Maddie posted the picture from practice the other day where he, he had right. the Rudy stance. You know, it's <laughs> a stance you don't see today. Where did that come from? Uh, well, it was from watching Jacques Quant and Bernie Perrant, so that would have been typical of how they played. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was more for the optics. So that was, uh, you know, as as you would know from my career, I sort of progressed and I yep. got my legs spread out a lot more uh, the longer I played. And But it was just more because I'm not a big guy in comparison to those guys. I, I'm 5'10", 5'11". And so why I had that my catching glove in that position was just so the net didn't look so open. Mm -hmm. And so I did it just for the visual aspect of it. Uh, once the puck was dropped, I did keep my legs really close together. But uh, as, as I said, my career wore on, I found the benefits of uh, sort of incorporating my sor sort of version of the butterfly. I think it was closer to just a hybrid Dominic Hoshik style where, you know, you have all your, your techniques, 
all your fundamentals, your skating drills, they're all the exact same. But at some point, you just abandon your technique and try and make a save. And that's what yeah. people were confused by with Dominic Hoshik. They would say, well, there's no rhyme or reason, and he just dies all over. And, and that's, that's not accurate at all. In fact, if you watch Dominic in comparison to uh, every other goalie that's ever played, same skating technique, same crease movements, everything about it was the exact same. He just had an ability to ad lib in a style in which nobody else had, uh, and he perfected. He's incredible. Like I still say, he's the best goal ever played the, in mm -hmm. the National Hockey League. He was just dominant. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, they talk about it on the In Goal podcast a lot of uh, Mark Andre Fleury and how he's a a throwback goaltender compared to a lot of the other guys today. And what sets him apart is just that ability to not give up on a play. And by yeah. doing so, he makes these weird, incredible saves. And it's just because he doesn't give up on the play. And I, I think, uh, you know, the era you played, the era I gr grew up in, that was just common. You know, it's, yeah. it's stuck. You get caught out of position. You throw whatever it is you can get over there to try and get in, in front of the puck. And yeah. It, it works sometimes. <laughs> well, you look at Vasilevsky, right? He's yep. an incredible goalie, and he has that same trait. He just doesn't give up on pucks. And, yep. uh, you know, he's he great at technique and great at a million things, but he also has that mindset that, you know what, if I find myself a little, little bit out of position, desperation kicks in and he'll do anything he needs to to, to find a way to get across the crease and yep. get some part of the body on the puck. Absolutely. I mean, how many times are we going to see him make that behind the back glove save? Wow. You know, it's just like, wow. that was <laughs> you, phenomenal. You, you do it once and that, that's pretty special. You do it twice. Now you're just showing off like you're trying to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'd tell you he's trying to do that, but it's a pretty cool trick to have in your bag. A absolutely. Um, you know, and now, Again, thinking about uh, you and your playing days, uh, w when I think of you, aside from your stance, I think of that Jofa combination bucket. Yeah. Had, you know, a lot of goalies, they would wear the Cooper. Uh, but you, like Archie Serbe, went with that Jofa. Um, and it, it's funny because I had that helmet, different cage, but that helmet was my first helmet. So I know there's not a lot of protection in it. What about that helmet did you like? Okay, so... Going back to my junior days, I wore the molded mask, right? The mm -hmm. fitted mask. Okay, you did. All of us did. And, uh, and all of a sudden, my idol, Bernie Perrant, was clipped by a high stick. And he had the molded mask. And that ended his career. Mm -hmm. He lost vision in one of his eyes. So at that point, immediately, I thought, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to a cage. I'm going to a helmet in a cage. And at that time, the Jofa helmet, I thought, had as much or more protection than the other helmets because of the angling. So it had kind mm -hmm. of like a ramp on the front. And uh, it, it appeared to me as though playing that position, you might get a shot up here. And if you can have some sort of ramp that would sort of diffuse the initial blast, that might be helpful. And so I went to that mask uh, combination. I liked it. I think you might remember that I had the bars really close together. I didn't have the yep. cat eye. Right, And I went to the cat eye because I, I personally think that that's still dangerous because depending on the mask itself, depending on the angle of the puck, it can still go in that. Yeah. It, now, it's we a long shot. Brian Boucher, he had the puck yeah. hot in the, the cat eye. 
it, it's very close and you can easily get the stick of a blade we we've watched that a number of times mm -hmm. luckily it hasn't led to a serious injury but anyways and then when i got to the nhl and the the combo the molded mask with the cage which every guy wears now that was becoming more available and so i tried a brand uh I think I wore it about five games on the island. Um, and I have to tell you, because of going from the helmet and the cage that I wore to this new style that uh, was getting quite popular, I couldn't get used to it because of the weight of it. It mm -hmm. wasn't light yeah. uh, with the, the technology that they have now. That the, the, it, you know, It's so comfortable to wear now. And I finally went to that more uh, common mask. I went to uh, Don Strauss and his armadillo mask yeah. and uh and i i found it great because the technology was where i needed it to be it was extremely safe and yet it uh, suited my uh, feel for how heavy it was because i thought it was really really light so i was one of the last ones to get on board but i think i waited for the right reason you know and i i think what sets you apart with those combos is i i know a few guys like urbe and hashik eventually went to painting them but he, you you had yours painted, both in in Long Island and in L.A. And the L.A. one was great with the crown on the front. But what I appreciated yeah. about it was it wasn't like the masks today or even of the 80s and 90s where the whole thing was painted. It was just little bits, you know. Yeah. What what prompted you to just throw a little little bit on there but not a ton? Yeah, because I like simple. So I liked mm – -hmm. The fact that when you looked at my masks, you could always, always recognize what I was trying to do with it. You mm -hmm. could always figure out what the mask sort of meant or signified. So when I was on Long Island, very simple, you know, pictures of maybe the island itself and a couple other little things. Those weren't painted, by the way. Those were just really cool decals that uh, okay. they were able to find. Uh, when I finally went to L.A., though, then I had some decals and then I had... A great opportunity. There's a guy by the name of Troy Lee. He has a company, Troy Lee Design. So clothing, uh, artwork, phenomenal artwork. And I can't remember, one of our trainers struck up a friendship with Troy Lee himself. And I think Troy Lee used to do, if I'm not, I, I could be corrected here, I believe he did like NASCARs. And he okay. did like really cool paint jobs. And he was interested in painting my Jofa mask. So of course we allowed that to happen. I don't know if you ever charged the team or not, but I thought that was amazing. And <laughs> so whenever I walk into a store of his now, and I'm like, that's cool. I know this guy, and he even did some artwork for me. But uh, And then when we went to the Don Strauss design, our middle, uh, I have to tell you, we were trying to come up with something really cool. And I always loved Mike Richter's uh, mask with the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, And that was my favorite because it's so simple. Whenever you go to New York City, what's the first landmark you think of? Statue, Statue of Liberty. And so his mask is just so striking. And I thought, man, I've had to come up with something like that. And it, we got the idea pretty quickly. But we're like, well, hallway. When you come to L.A., you want to see the Hollywood sign, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what we put on that first mask that I had from Don. And I thought it became iconic. I think it, it was so easy to understand. Yeah. I was... I was absolutely thrilled and honored this past hockey season in a throwback retro game that Jonathan Quick 
uh, emulated that. He had a, a Hollywood mask made up that was very cool. Uh, I, I just think that sometimes, this is just my feeling, other people could be say it way differently, but the current masks are impossible for me to understand what's painted on. They're yeah. like it's beautiful when you see it up close and you see the artwork and how you know how difficult it would be to come up with all that. I, I'm like blown away. But for the most time, I, I leave a morning skate after looking at the goalie's mask, and I'm like, I say to my broadcast partner Rick Ball, "What's what's on that mask? I don't even <laughs> understand it." And, and I can't imagine the fans in the building going. Oh yeah, that makes sense to me. I think sometimes simple is better, but then again, I'm old. I, I'm in the same camp of you, as you. I, I loved that about the masks of the '80s and the '90s. Is you could tell what it was from the stands. Now I think there is a neat opportunity with the techniques they have today, where uh, Marty Brodeur is a great example. He kept that same iconic yeah. look his whole career, but toward the end of his career, if you got right up on the mask, you saw some other yeah. pieces in there that were more for him not so right. much for the viewer or the fan that's where I think there's opportunity today but yeah there, there's some of the stuff where you're right you're looking at going what's going on here I you I know. know I know it looks beautiful I know the yeah. artwork's incredible but I don't know I can't tell you what it is yeah that, that's what I've loved about guys like Corey Crawford who've kept it <clears> simple. <throat> Um, yep. you, know, you could tell what it is while watching the yep. broadcast. You don't have to get the yep. zoom in close up. Now, like a guy like Eddie Belfour, simple design, but I loved whenever they went ISO cam on them. Just oh, yeah. because I loved looking at that mask. Same oh, thing with that Hollywood mask. So I remember the first time I saw it, I was watching ESPN, Gary Thorne announcing a game, and I was like, <laughs> oh, look, look at that. It was just, it was a beautiful mask where I, I think it's probably you know, top two LA Kings masks of all time, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. But art is subjective, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a couple others in there, but I, I think your mask and probably Jonathan Quick's, just because he's kept it simple and the same over the years. Yeah. yeah. You know, he, those are the top two. And, uh, you know, just talking about Jonathan Quick, I love that guy. You know, mm -hmm. we've, uh, I wouldn't say that we're dear friends or anything, but <laughs> because of uh, my history playing about eight years there and his uh, career he's had and all the success, uh, I'm, I'm really lucky because whenever I, I see him, whether it's on the road or in LA, he takes time to chat with me and I always appreciate that. Just a great guy. Yeah, he, he seems like it. Everybody I've talked to that has had a run-in with him in one way or another, mm -hmm. they just love him. Uh, he just seems like a very down-to-earth guy, um, yeah. you know, and he's just so gosh darn fun to watch. I mean, oh, talk, talk about a guy with the perfect name uh, with the way he plays. Right? <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I think you should do yourself a favor, Joe, and go watch that interview I did with him. I think Ballpark would be around 2013, and uh, – Wow, he, he's just very insightful, and uh, he talks about watching Mike Richter growing up and mm -hmm. why why he enjoyed watching Richter play, and he's just really honest about, uh, you know, the way he approaches the game. is really cool. Yeah, uh, trust me, I'm, I'm going to go search that one out. I'll probably even put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, oh, I like now, you mentioned the, the transition to the armadillo helmet, um, you know, and what I know of Don Strauss is, you know, he – he comes from the racing industry. So when he yeah. thought of a goalie mask, he 
he didn't come with the same preconceived notions as everybody else. So what, at what point did you decide, yeah, it's time for me to change to a mask and this is the one I'm going to go to? Well, when I, when I finally decided I was going to go to the, the newer style mask, I looked at a few different versions and, uh, Don struck me because it's a little bit different. Yep. Uh, I had it to explain to me by one of my friends that, you know, when you first see a Porsche, it looks different, right? You know, yeah. It doesn't look like a, a regular car. And that's kind of what looking at uh, one of Don's uh, mask design looks like. It looks different than what everybody had on the market at that time. And I, yeah. I kind of like that. And then once I had the product in my hand, that's when I really decided. I, I started using it in the summer uh, when I was getting ready for training camp. And I thought I really like it. I really liked, as I said, the quality of it, how I knew that it would offer the protection that I needed. And then when, when Don and I, and I had this friend Lenny Davis in LA helping me, yeah, actually putting all of us together, connection and thinking of the artwork, that's when I think Don really stood out because of his ability to think about art and how you can put it onto a mask. And yeah. in fact, Don was more than instrumental in also taking that same idea and putting it on all my equipment. So you might remember my pads at artwork, my gloves had artwork. I, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think anybody had done that back then. No. We all, we had colored pads, but nobody had artwork on their pads. And I think, I believe I might've been the first. It's like you're reading my notes right now, because that was one of the <laughs> next things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, a lot of goalies, when I mention it, they, they don't remember it, but I, I remember the first time seeing you. Well, first you had those, uh, Vix that had the the American flag on there and the the black yeah. and gray, which I remember getting the Gunzos catalog and seeing them for the first time before you had even worn them. I'm like, oh, right? I want those pads. Uh, but then you had the film reels on there, and I just yeah. remember how cool that looked, and that they were airbrushed on there. Um, and and I was wondering, you know, where did that come from? But it sounds like it was Don just thinking, you know, let's not just have it the helmet, let's have it you know, almost the cutting edge of what we see today with, you know, Bauer and their DigiPrint yeah. technology. Yeah, it, was, it was the three of us, uh, Don, my friend Lenny in LA and, and myself trying to come up with the ideas of what might look cool. Now, Don uh, really knew how to, if we threw out an idea, Don knew how to, you know, grab that idea mm -hmm. and figure out how you can do it. And if it's reasonable or something that you can actually put on a pad or a piece of equipment or a glove or something. So uh, I remember, I think it was the film reel. We had to go through a number of pairs that year because although it looked fantastic, the, the kind of paint on the material, the leather padding, mm -hmm. it would wear off, I'm going to say, in 15, 20 games. And so we had to make sure that we're uh, – doing our, our due diligence to make sure that the pads still look great all throughout the season. And we did that. Do, do, do you ever sit there uh, these days wondering what your equipment would look like with the modern printing technology they have for the stuff? Wow. <laughs> well, I suppose it would depend on which team I was playing for, but you're right with what they have available to them now. Like I saw uh, Henry, Henrik Lundqvist just showed his setup. Uh, yeah. I think a couple of days ago on yep. social media, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. 
That was uh, exactly what I was hoping for, exactly what it should be. And uh, I, I just love the fact that he's embraced that new role. You know, he, he's found a way to take the, the modern technology, but still keep that simple classic look, I think. Right. Yeah. You know, and I, I even think of your pads with today's technology, those film reels, probably if we got up close, you'd be able to see the individual frames, what the movies were. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I can't quite remember that anymore, but I, I do know on my, the actual mask, Don tried to really make it look as though in the film reel, film, film reel on my mask, that there, each frame had a different little image. So, yep. you know, incredible. Yeah, that, that's crazy. Now, the, the other thing, when we think back of you and your playing date that uh, I think every goalie is going to remember is that blue bandana. I, I remember watching those finals, and I had to have a bandana, but I couldn't find one that's hung down far enough, so I took a blue T-shirt and cut it up. You know, I'm guessing because you had that great head of hair, uh, you know, just flowing, it was to keep that uh, in yeah. check. But, uh, you know, what's the story behind that? I would well, say legendary bandana. Yeah, it was in combination with my long hair. I'd always had long hair as a kid. And uh, in my last year in junior, I started wearing contacts. And so anybody out there back then, especially in the 70s and 80s, if you wore contacts, sweat really bothered your eyes. Like technology has really improved so much mm -hmm. so with contacts. It still bothers them, but it doesn't bother you like it used to. And so... I was frustrated. I was going through all sorts of different sort of headbands trying to find something that was absorbent enough that uh, the sweat didn't bother my eyes. And so one day in uh, a practice on Long Island, I just thought, hey, you know what? I'm just going to try this. I'm going to rip up the blue T-shirts, uh, the pajama tops that we wore under our equipment, and I'm going to just tie it around my head and see how this works. And lo and behold, <laughs> it was the best thing I'd ever uh, used. And so... At that point, I certainly had no idea that I was going to become kind of like my trademark, right? I just thought, oh, this is great. It's going to keep the sweat out of my eyes a little bit better than any other headband that I had tried. And next thing you know, I'm playing with it a little more. It started <laughs> off just as a little strip like this and hung out only about a couple inches behind my mask. And I started getting braver and I get the headband way across my forehead and hang down about five or seven inches, something like that. And it, I have to admit, I thought it looked pretty cool for a while. And then uh, when I moved to San Jose, I remember talking with my family because now I was getting sick of it. I was getting, I don't know, bored with it. And they said, no, no, Dad, you have to wear it. It's kind of like <laughs> a great mark. And so the final two years of my career, I still wore the blue bandana, but I didn't like it. <laughs> you did it for the kids, right? I did. <laughs> you know, you mentioned your time in San Jose um and that's kind of when you started spending some time in the broadcast booth when you guys didn't make the playoffs um did you always see yourself getting into broadcasting or was that more of a it was an opportunity and it just it was something you really enjoyed no I took it seriously I I remember starting out in New York and uh you wouldn't know this but growing up I was painfully shy like I was a really shy kid so <laughs> I rarely uh, got involved in the discussions. I was a great listener, uh, but uh, talking publicly was not a strong point of mine. And so when I made the Islanders, and uh, of course in New York, 
there's all sorts of uh, different interview requests and speaking uh, engagements and so on. And so I started to really enjoy it. And, and then I'd watch a hockey game or another sporting event, it didn't matter, but in particular in hockey, I wouldn't just watch the, the periods, I'd watch the intermissions and I'd watch the, the interviewers. Now I wouldn't only just watch the hockey player being interviewed, I'd watch the guy doing the interview because I thought this is pretty cool. And so I started to really pay attention to that and work on my, my skills in that area. And although I didn't want to reveal too much about what was going on on the ice, I still wanted to say more than most guys. I wanted to give the viewer and the interviewer more you know, meat, uh, more than just, you know, that's a good team and we got to give 100% or whatever. I, I thought there's, there can be a better way to do this. And so More than the cliche. Right. And so I thought I really worked at that. And then I was given a great opportunity, which ultimately got me known on Hockey Night in Canada. So it was, uh, in fact, it was in your great city at the Met Center. Um, the dead of winter it would have been 1995, uh, the 94-95 season. Rob Staubrother, goalie, was playing that night. And uh, I happened to be the first intermission guest on KTLA in Los Angeles. And there was a legendary sports broadcaster uh, on KTLA by the name of Stu Nahan. Stu happened to be originally from Montreal, but moved to LA and had an amazing broadcasting career. And he and I got along famously. And so back then those interviews weren't just like the 30 second or one minute interview. These were sit down chats. And so Mm -hmm. this interview I bet went about seven minutes. And the people at Hockey Night in Canada were watching it, a guy by the name of John Shannon and our current host, Ron McLean. And uh, they both talked like the next day or two, like, did you watch that interview with <laughs> Nahan and Rudy? And they both agreed that given an opportunity down the road, they might ask me to join them on Hockey Night. And so at the end of that year, we missed the playoffs by a point. We were in Chicago. We flew home. And John Shannon, the executive producer of Hockey Night, had called my house and asked if I'd be interested in coming to uh, Toronto to work in the brand new atrium show in the CBC building on Front Street in Toronto. And I said, of course, I'd I'd love to. And he said, but I have to be honest, you're our second choice. And I thought, oh, darn it. And then he told me the first choice is Wayne Gretzky. (laughs) And uh, luckily for me, Wayne declined. And I've been... uh, I've been working 22 years, I believe, full-time on hockey night and four years as a player when, as you mentioned, my team didn't make the playoffs and or we lost in the first round. So incredible run. I never would have imagined that one appearance on hockey night in 1995 would have led to a broadcasting career like this. You know, it's it's sometimes funny in how it it all works out, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's awesome. Uh, you know, and I, I think uh, hockey fans are happy it worked out that way because you're pretty darn good at what you do now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really enjoy it. It's uh, it's kind of like this, Joe. If you're just real, then yeah. you, know, you and I can have a great, easy conversation. It's not work. Yep. Uh, and the only thing I'd say for in terms of going on a national broadcast every night there's like you took notes right you you got ready for this you've got to put in the same work so all week long whether I'm working on a Flames broadcast and or if I'm doing a national show on hockey night you've got to put in the work you can't just rely on your skill 
at breaking down a play, you've got to put in the work. Well, I, it's interesting you say that because, uh, as you know, here in Minnesota, the boys' high school hockey tournament is huge. Oh, it's, yeah. It's legendary. It's on network TV here. And Gary Thorne had it on his bucket list to call the yep. boys' high school hockey tournament. And a couple of years ago, he did that. It was Gary Thorne and Lou Nanny in the booth. Oh, wow. And they were talking about how you, you have to do your homework. He couldn't yeah. just come here and broadcast the games. He had to know the backgrounds on the teams in the tournament, the players. And, yeah. And so for months leading up to the state tournament, he was getting weekly packages yeah. with videotape, with rosters, so he could learn yeah. the names and everything else. And then uh, he came and he did it, and it was such a great uh week of broadcast to watch because you know it's not just one game it's a week of single a and double a games and a friend of mine was in from chicago with his son for a hockey term and he goes what's going on here and i go what do you mean he goes i just turned on the tv and i have gary <laughs> thorne and lou nanny announcing high school hockey on network tv right he's like this is incredible i go it is now gary's not here every year but the rest of that is normal yeah <laughs> i gotta tell you joe uh, I got to know Gary Thorne a little bit, but he he shocked me one year in Los Angeles. Is after it was a day off, uh, or not a game day. We had a practice, but he was visiting with me in the dressing room afterwards, and I was asking him broadcast questions because I was really interested in it. And he shared with me he worked back then. Uh, he might have been the busiest guy in the uh, broadcasting <laughs> industry at that time because he was doing. National Hockey League games. He was doing college baseball. He was doing college football. Uh, he might have been doing uh, Major League Baseball. He had so many sports that he was doing. I think at that time he told me he was working something like 330 days a year, broadcasting all sorts of different sports. And I, I kind of looked at him like, that's crazy. Like, you, yeah. you know, to take much time off at all. And he just didn't. And he had been doing that for years. It's not like, just that one year, he uh, he had decided to take on all these new projects. He was fully engaged. Yeah, you know, the, the talk with Doc Emmerich retiring is who can step yes. into his shoes. There's only one person that could step into his shoes, and in my opinion, that's Gary Thorne. Wow. You know. There, there's some good ones out there, though. Oh, oh there, there are. There absolutely yeah. there are. It, it's funny, too, because all the ho- you know hockey fans start talking about their local favorite, you know. Uh, yeah. Guys like Pat Foley, you know, keep coming yeah. to mind. And it's like, they're great. Yeah, but you, you need that, that, that national voice who, who's going to do well. Do well. I got to tell you, if you ever get a chance to watch uh, Calgary Flames uh, broadcast on Sportsnet, oh, yeah. you got to check out my partner, Rick Ball. He's been yeah, doing play forever. He is solid. He's, yeah. he's going to be doing uh, only national, in my opinion, somewhere down the road. He's, he's too special of a broadcaster. I've had the NHL ticket for a couple of years. And so, yes, I've, I've watched those broadcasts. That's for sure. I'm pretty um, spoiled to sit in that chair beside him and just watch him do his magic. Yeah. You know, it's, it's his, um, Eddie Olchek has said about the local Chicago yeah. broadcast is, you know, his Pat Foley makes his job easy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> he makes uh, him look good. Absolutely. And then you add in, you know, one of my, uh, uh, friends playing in uh, New York, Steve Conroy on the studio show, and yep. Troy Murray does his stuff on on their broadcast. So yeah, yeah, it takes a lot of talented people to, especially in those big big markets, right? Like yep. 
you've got to have a good show. And uh, it shows that they put in the time and effort and the money to make sure those shows uh, are what they should be. Yeah, so I, I, I'm a big fan of Eddie Olchek simply because we went to the same high school. In uh, okay. <laughs> my, my senior year, I was walking into uh, school. I went to an all-boys Catholic school, so we had to wear a shirt and tie every day. Yeah. But on Fridays, we could wear a school shirt. So I always wore my jersey. I'm walking in on a Friday wearing my jersey, and there's the uh, principal talking to Eddie Olchek right outside the cafeteria. And Mr. Antos goes, Joe, come here. I want to introduce you to I said, I know who it is, Mr. Antos. It's Eddie Olchek. And he goes, yeah, Eddie, this is Joe, our varsity goaltender and everything. And so we got talking. and uh, But he was just there that day to see the, the old stomping grounds. But it, it was just funny that the, the principal thought he had to introduce Eddie Olchek to me as if I didn't know who it was gonna, yeah. that was. <laughs> I don't think you find anybody that has a bad word to say about Eddie. He's just no. a wonderful human being. No, you know, and growing up in Chicago, seeing him around the uh, rinks many times as kids played, he yeah. he always had the time of day for every single kid who came up to him, Absolutely. Uh, which was great, which, uh, yeah, that, that was always fun. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, we started off with our beer. Um, you know, I, I've followed you on social media for a while. I understand you're a lot like me and that you have an appreciation for beer. And I, I say it's always difficult because yeah. how do you say you enjoy beer without sounding like you're a lush, you know, because <laughs> I'm the kind of person I enjoy a good, not just a craft beer, but just a good beer. It could be, you know, yeah. your, your large market beers um, if it's good. And so where did that develop from or when did it develop? Uh, you know, was it something that just all of a sudden it was like, you know, this is good stuff. Oh, boy, that's, I don't know. I, I know that I, like what you said, there's something really refreshing about a good cold beer after you mow the lawn. Yeah. And that's kind of like what I felt after a game. I, I just really lighted, liked a nice, cold, crisp, uh, light beer. That, that's still what I gravitate towards. You know, I've had plenty of really good craft beers that I truly appreciate. In fact, uh, one of our son-in-laws knows beer from seriously around the world. <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, we went to Europe, uh, what is it about three years ago with all of our kids and uh, our partner, all the partners and every city we go into, whether it's in Amsterdam or Berlin or wherever. And I'd go, Hayden, what should I order? And he'd go down the list and he'd find me beer. And then to Paul and Matt, he'd go, <laughs> Uh, I think you would really like this, and he was always spot on. But this is, like I, I told you before, this is kind of what I gravitate towards, just yep. a nice, simple beer. This is a Sapporo that many yeah. people, I'm sure, it's had. a good beer. I was having Grolsch recently, and then I saw, you know, I'm going to go to another light beer like a Sapporo, and they're not, you know, the, the best craft beer, but they're just a really well-made light beer. Yeah, you know, and I see a guy like Marty Turco now is getting into the brewing business. Um, oh, very nice. So I, next time, I shouldn't say next time because I've never been, but if I ever make it down to Texas, I'm going to have to pick up some of his beer and try oh, yeah, it out. Totally. Uh, you know, so it, it, as you do travel, it sounds like you, you try and uh, sample the local flair. Um, I know I do. Yeah. Uh, well, if, if the uh, broadcasting when the broadcasting takes you to Columbus, you're going to have to check out the brewery Brew Dogs. Uh, okay. they're, they're a brewery out of Scotland that makes some amazing beers. Um, they're famous for brewing the highest ABV beer when Scotland okay. 
changed their laws and allowed for it. Uh, so it's like a 54% ABV. It's just ridiculous. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, and it's not cheap. I think it's like ten dollars or $15,000 a bottle. Um, oh. And so th- th- they know if you're going to pay that, you should have something to show for it when you're done drinking it. Wow. So wow. It com- the bottle comes in a taxidermied squirrel. <laughs> so yeah when they when they decided to open a brewery in america they wanted to find a state that had similar laws as scotland that would allow them oh. to make that beer here and uh ohio was the only one so that's why they settled in columbus of all places uh but i, yeah, I that's, that's I, an odd thing isn't it because that's what our son-in-law taught us that you know a particular brand i don't know i'm just gonna use this yeah might taste a little bit different wherever you are because every in our case our provinces in your case the states have different brewing uh uh, regulations and and i have no idea that yeah i I was reading about guinness i I love guinness on tap to me there's nothing better than that and they, they always say guinness in ireland is so much better and that is because more so because of the water um, right. the water is different. The pH balance is different here as it is there. Yeah. But the Irish like American Guinness better because it's more potent. <laughs> 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 they don't care about the taste. They like it because it's more potent. <laughs> well, I've taken the, I've taken the plunge and I've even had, uh, a Guinness out of a can and it exceeded my, my, uh, expectations. Yeah. I thought, a Guinness has got to be out of a tap, right? That's that's the only way. And much to my surprise, I was like, this is pretty good. Well, they, they have that little ball in the bottom of yeah. the can that helps it. But it, yeah. it it does taste different, though. There's just something oh, about yeah. it oh. on tap where, oh, yeah, it's yeah. just, to me, it it's just so smooth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but th- that's just the Irish in me, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, so it, it sounds like your favorite style of beer is just kind of that lighter beer that, um, yep. you yep. know, and those are perfect for right after a game. You know, it's funny. I, yep. I, li- I like darker beers. I, I like a good craft beer, but yep. a good Coors Light after a skate just hits the spot. Or a round of golf. Yeah, we see, see, now, as a goaltender, I'm not very good at golf. So uh, I, I, I need it during the I need it during the round to get through the round. Yeah, well, that's you know that's what you call aiming juice. When you have a couple of drinks during the round of golf, you you say that's aiming juice, and then when you get <laughs> off the course, and I'm spoiled, John or Joe, because my wife li- loves to golf also. So yep, uh, uh, we golf often. You know, some years fifty, sixty times together. Uh, and uh, man, there's nothing like sitting down after. She'll have a nice cold glass of white wine and I'll have a cold beer and it's perfect. It's a great day together. It sounds like it, you know, again, it's like you're reading my notes because one of the last things for, um, I end every episode with a list of rapid fire questions, but I also like to ask, you know, outside of hockey, you know, what fuels you? And if following you on social media, I could tell golf, especially with your wife and then time with the grandkids, you know, so what, what else gets you, um, uh, or I should say occupies your time away from the rink, away from the broadcast booth? Uh, it used to be squash. Uh, <laughs> that was such a great game. And then I ended up having knee surgery and I can't play squash anymore. So I've had to find other things to do. I love a good bike ride. Uh, walks are really important to me, not only just to try and you know stay a little active, but uh, it's good for my 
mental state, try and, you know, work on things uh, mentally. Uh, like you said, golf. I love driving, and I, I don't know it's for everybody, but growing up in Western Canada, you drive a lot, right? Yeah. Your vacations are, they have a lot to do with driving. And in uh, Western Canada, we're spoiled with the Rocky Mountains and uh, in Alberta and British Columbia. In fact, Joe, once this season just ended, uh, about two weeks after the season, uh, my wife and I went for a trip to the Canadian Rockies and then went all through British Columbia, made our way to a beautiful ski resort. There's no, there was no snow at the time, but a place <laughs> called Whistler, yep. which a lot of Americans have been to. And then we made our way down to Vancouver, which I happen to think is the prettiest city in all of North America. Spent uh, three nights there and then drove back through the Rockies home. So uh, I just love a nice driving trip. That that sounds awesome. You know, I, I, I'm with you on the walks th- through this quarantine. I've been taking my kids when we get a chance on weekends to the different state parks around here just to yeah, get right. outside and see something a little different than the Absolutely. neighborhoods. And it, there's just something about uh, getting out there in the fresh air and getting a good couple miles and that I like good for the soul. Okay, I'm looking forward to the rapid fire. Yeah, so the craziest coaching moment uh, from your playing days. Holy cow. Is, is, it, is it a short sentence or just one thing? You, one word? It's up to you. It, it could be... Okay, I know what. Back yeah. in junior, the bench-clearing brawls that we had, and uh, there, I mean, coaches were pushing guys off the yeah. bench and on the ice. It was nuts. It was a... The craziest time of my career. <laughs> um, so what is your favorite all-time goalie mask? It could be yours or somebody else's. Gary Cheever's. The that's, Stitches mask. That's a good one. It, it uh, has influenced so many people. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. In fact, I got to uh, interview a number of years ago, Todd Miska, who painted Steve Shields, Gary Cheever's oh. tribute. And that was the first yeah, time. Right. Somebody really did the the old yeah. school mask on the new one, and and uh, with the ears and everything. Yeah, he he did a really nice job on that yeah. one. Uh, what's your favorite rink that you've played at? Oh man, Chicago, um, Montreal Forum, Maple Leaf Gardens. Now, for whatever reason, most times, Joe, if I really enjoyed the city, then I played well in that building. <laughs> Um, so I played really well often in Vancouver, whether it was in the, the old Pacific Coliseum or the new building. Um, and I only played in the new building once or twice, but I still really enjoy it because there was something special about the energy in a building when you love the city itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting you, you say that and then mention the Chicago Stadium because when you played, that stadium was not in a very good neighborhood. Um, in fact, my, my dad was a Chicago fireman for 30 years. And for a number of years, his firehouse was right down the block from there. So uh, what was that like? You know, the first time you're pulling up to the Chicago stadium and you're looking around the neighborhood, like, are we in the right area or what? Well, I had been forewarned, but that didn't do it justice. It was, uh, I was really, uh, it was an eye-opener uh, coming from a community in Edmonton, a little place called Elmwood, and, yeah. and to see that area was uh, eye-opening, to say the least. I, I had no idea. I was warned that you can't leave the, the confines of the uh, chain-link fence or the fence yeah. that they have 
the razor wire at the top. So yeah, outside of gate three and a half there. Oh my gosh, that was something. Yeah, it, it was. I don't uh, really uh, that anymore. It was a great building in a terrible neighborhood. Now the, the neighborhood has gotten better, but oh, it's yeah. still not a uh, a neighborhood I like to spend time in after dark. It's not well after dark. Maybe I, I can't say that because I don't. I'm not there after yeah. dark. But oftentimes when the Blackhawks are in the players or in the playoffs, and we're we're there broadcasting. Yeah. If the, if there's a, a day off where there's a just a skate, no game. I'll walk back to the. I'll walk back downtown uh, yeah. the whole way, and it'll take me a couple hours. But it's a beautiful walk, and I really enjoy it now. Oh yeah, well then you've probably walked past my dad's firehouse a number of times because it was right in, the, right in the parking lot of the nine one one center, which is across the street from Johnny's Ice House, that uh, practice rink, uh, just east of wow. the United Center. So, yeah, oh those, yeah, for sure. Those, it, I have been, yeah. But like you said, it's it's a nice walk down Madison straight to uh, oh, the loop. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about my favorite stick earlier, that Cooper Reactor 5. What is the uh, your favorite stick that you use during your playing days? Uh, I like that Cooper, the Bauer. But I think early on when I played in New York, those Vicks, Victoria Bills that I had, yep. those were – and I use those for a part of my time in Los Angeles. I just, those are really well-made sticks. I liked them. Yeah, they, they didn't break. You, you really had to um, try to break them uh, or have a probably 15-year-old association one like I did that just finally dry-rotted. <laughs> yeah, and I was introduced to the owner. Uh, Warren Amendola was the guy, his name. He was a beautiful guy. Uh, he had the rights to all the Victoria Bill merchandise, all the sticks, the equipment, and so on. And uh, Warren was just a, a really nice guy. Warren, when Brian Trotche made the Islanders his first year, Brian moved in with Warren and his family. And uh, Warren had one rule to live with their family, that he asked Brian uh, at dinner every night, he had to have two new words. He had to learn two new words. Uh, in his vocabulary and that was the stipulation to live in that house and uh, I just when I heard that I that that's a quality person just trying to help Brian uh you know with his life well you know it it clearly rubbed off on him because I played college hockey with Brian Trottier Jr. Um, and Trotch drove probably the worst car on campus Oh, is that right? And we would pick on him. We're like, Trotch, can't your dad get you something better? And you would say, yeah. he can. He said, but he, he always told us that he will give us what we need, not what we want. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he, he instilled it in his kids. And now Trotch Jr. is an oncologist here in the uh, suburbs of the Twin Cities. Um, oh, nice. So like he, he instilled a good work ethic in his kids, that's for sure. Um, what is your favorite youth hockey memory? Uh, winning the provincial champion championships my last year midget hockey in uh, Alberta. So we had won the city title. Uh, we had real stiff competition. Uh, so we won Edmonton and Mike Vernon's team won in Calgary. And so in 1978, the spring of 78, we had the tournament down here in Calgary and uh, we won the the tournament, which made us provincial champs, and that's uh, one, uh, uh, 
that's a big accomplishment here in Alberta. And uh, I'm very proud of that. That's awesome. Uh, The next question is one that uh, has had a lot of uh, interesting responses. What is your favorite chirp that you've heard on the ice? Oh, I bet I can't say it. I, uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I had Mike Eagles was his name. And uh, we're playing in Winnipeg one night, and I got him good. I, I slashed him really, really hard in a really sensitive area. <laughs> on and I think like two or three games later, we're back in L.A., and there was a scrum in front of my net, and uh, and I fell in the puck, and somehow my legs were apart a little bit further than I would have liked. And I saw him coming in with a stick, and he just pitchforked me. <laughs> and said something like, how's that feel? I got you back. And he put a <laughs> words in there that I can't share. But I, I, I even looked at him. I was like, yeah, you're right. I, I kind of deserve that. <laughs> So we've mentioned, you know, the, the really good beer post game. What's the worst post game beer you've had? Uh, old Milwaukee. <laughs> 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 or there was there was one in Washington State. Was it Rainier? I think they had one like that when I was a a kid playing junior hockey. There was a really lousy one in Washington State that I had that. I didn't like, but it was, it's all I could afford, so it worked. I, I laugh at Old Milwaukee because that was my grandpa's beer. That was oh, always, he always had that down in the basement basement fridge. Uh, thank <laughs> God, I've, thank God, I've never tried it. Right. <laughs> well, when you taped your stick, did you go heel to toe or toe to heel? Uh, I went uh, heel to toe, and uh, but I. I think I did the knob first and then heel to toe on the blade. Okay. Yeah. Most goalies go heel to toe. I've talked to a few that go toe to heel and uh, they usually have good reasons. Yeah. So I have, I don't know if I had a good reason. It just felt easier to do. Same here. Yeah. My feeling was, is the, uh, uh, heel is usually where I would screw up my tape job. So if I screw up early on, I didn't have as much to fix. That's right. If you're going to screw it up, it'd be on the heel area. Yeah. Um, although some goalies today don't even go to the heel. They don't even tape the heels, so they, they don't have that skill. Um, your favorite number to wear? Uh, 32, I think. Okay. Uh, I really loved 30 when I played in New York, but because 32 was so unique at the time, yep. that uh, I liked it. It was a little bit different. Now, you mentioned a unique number. Um, you know, it seemed like anything in 29 to 39 and 1 was acceptable when yeah. we were playing. Uh, unless you were Ron Hexall, then 27 worked. Um, what do you think of the, the young goaltenders today wearing numbers like 19 and 88 and, you know, all these weird combinations? Doesn't bother me at all. Uh, that's what's so good about this game. And I think yep. that one of the things I've really tried to focus on in the last 10 years or so, maybe even more, whatever the new kids like, jump on board. You know, I, yep. I don't think I want to be that guy, that that old grumpy guy that says, you know, hey, you know, you have to wear one or 30 or something like that. You know, yeah. I'm perfectly fine with whatever they choose and however they want to wear their gear is perfect. Well, I, I, I simply 
like to hear the stories behind why they picked that number. Um, you know, as we know, uh, a lot of the original six goalies were number one because that was the better sleeping berth on the, you know, the, the train cars. That's <laughs> as the story was told to me is you were assigned the sleeping berth that associated with your number. Number one was always bigger. So that's right. why a lot of goalies went with it. So it's, I always like to hear the stories behind the numbers, uh, but I'm with you. I don't care what they wear. Um, no. I just want to know why they're doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, right. So the, the last question in the rapid fire is what advice do you have for young goaltenders? Okay. This is going to sound stupid, but it's the best advice I was ever given. And it holds true to this day. Um, never take your eye off the puck. You, you're going to be, there'll be times where there'll be traffic yep. in front of you and you can't quite track it perfectly, but there, you, while the play is ongoing, never take your eye off the puck. Watch it. I don't care if it's in the other end. I don't care if your team's on the power play, moving the puck around. You watch that puck and you never take your eyes off it. I, I've watched so many bad goals go in because a player, a goalie's uh, unfocused. He takes his eyes off the puck. And next thing you know, uh, the puck is behind him. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's great advice. Well, Kelly, this went uh, a little longer than I had scheduled, but uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and next time your broadcast studies bring you to the Twin Cities, uh, you're going to have to let me buy you a beer for sure to make I up like that. I like it. That sounds good. <laughs> um, it's been uh, just a few months, Joe. That, that's God, is that the hope? I mean, they're letting us skate for beer league here, which is fantastic, but uh, right. we got some new sanctions coming down today, it sounds like, so we'll see. Uh, but, you know, I, I think we could all use a little more uh, hockey togetherness in our lives right now. I agree. Uh, but thank you again. It's been an absolute thrill. Um, in the show notes, I'll, I'll give people uh, links to your uh, uh, Twitter and Instagram accounts so they can okay, follow great. you there. And, and I'll, I'll pull up that uh, interview with Jonathan Quick and put that in there as well. I like it. I so, appreciate it, Joe. Thanks for the invite. This is fun. Yes, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kelly half as much as I did. We went much longer than I had on the calendar, but that's what happens when two goalies start talking. I hope Kelly takes me up on my offer to buy him a beer when his travels bring him through Minnesota next time. You can find Kelly on Twitter at KellyRudy, one word, and on Instagram at Kelly underscore Rudy. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube simply by searching Washed Up Goalie. Visit washedupgoalie.com for some great hockey-related content, my beer league hockey video highlights, and all podcast episodes. I need to give a big thank you to the hockey band Zambonis for allowing me to use their music on my podcasts. You can download their music on iTunes, listen to them on Amazon Music, or wherever else you stream your music from. I'm working on lining up other goalies to talk to as well. If you're a goalie or have connections to a goalie I should talk to, shoot me an email at washedupgoalie39 at gmail.com or send me a DM on social media. Let's not forget, if you're a brand who wants to sponsor the show, be sure to reach out. I'd be happy to talk. And finally, if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment on the podcast platform you're listening on. It's a quick action on your part that helps others find Tendy Talk. Until next time, keep your stick on the ice and your body square to the puck.